0: You are listening to New Covenant Fellowship. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Let's pray. Dear only Father, we beg of you this morning, Lord, that we would not uh, either speak or listen as to hear my words or my thoughts, God, but that you would speak through me. Father, make much of yourself through the testimony of Scripture, God. Show us how marvelous your way and your gate truly is, God. And Father, if there's anyone here today that is not entered through the narrow gate, Father, may they today, according to your will, in Jesus' name, amen. We're doing a study on the kingdom, a.k.a. the kingdom of God, a.k.a. the kingdom of heaven. And David, I don't know if this was your verbiage, but I really like what you said, that the kingdom is summarized with the territory and community of believers over which Christ rules as king. I really like that. Those are very essential elements in a kingdom. There is a territory or a place. There is a people. And then there is one anointed, one that sits upon a throne as the leader. There is a king. Those are the elements that we have in a kingdom. Now, what I'm going to try to do today is to summarize three sermon series, the purpose of the entire canonized scripture, as well as the apex of God's plan for humanity, and the hope of Israel in around 30 minutes. So... Consider my goal. It's lofty. The entire Bible from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21 is about Israel. The entire Bible is about Israel. Everything. From the beginning, from Adam to Christ, the second Adam, it is about God's relationship with Israel. And it's incredibly important to grasp that. And we're going to find that the kingdom, which is manifested in the New Testament, When we see Christ coming, uh, Matthew 7 here, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is proclaiming this truth, telling the glorious wonder of the fact that the kingdom is upon them in the first century. The kingdom had come to them and these mysteries were being revealed. Now the beautiful thing is that the kingdom was alluded to in the Old Testament. First, in the Garden of Eden. We see in the beginning in Genesis that God developed this marvelous place. This place that was lush and comfortable. This place that had food and cool waters. This place here, this garden of Eden, was a place that God himself had crafted for his creation. He made a man in his own image, and he named him Adam. And he gave him a wife. And he told Adam that he had created this place for him, this territory, if you will, for them to have fellowship. There was one stipulation, and the stipulation was that they were not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the one stipulation, or command, if you will. They could stay and remain in the territory of God, have fellowship with God, if they did not eat of that fruit. Well, unfortunately, they did indeed eat of that fruit. And God told them that on the day that they ate of it, they would surely die. Now, they did not die a natural or physical death. But the death we see manifested is they were banished out of the garden. They were removed from fellowship with God. And they were sent away. Because of their sins, they realized that they were naked. And they attempted to cover themselves with figs. And God took skins of an animal and covered them and sent them out. They were no longer in the place of fellowship with God. They were now out. So the garden is the first allusion to the kingdom. And the second is the promised land. So we see a long genealogy from Adam to go until a time where God is just displeased with his people entirely. And he elects a man named Noah. And he says, Noah, I'm going to take you and a few people of your family and I'm going to spare you because this is a wicked and depraved generation. So God destroys that people except for Noah and his remnant there and Noah is saved, and, and after the flood uh, recedes, Noah and his family begin to procreate, and then they begin to repopulate the area that God has given them. One of his descendants was named was Abram. And God came to Abram and told him, Abram, I want you to go to a far-off land. And when I take you there, I will bless you. I'll give you a son. And I will give you inheritance of uh you're actually going to have innumerable descendants. Uh, comparable to standing on the seashore, you'll have so many descendants. They'll be blessed, and whoever blesses them will be blessed, and whoever curses them will be cursed. And this was the promise that God made to Abram, and Abram believed God. That is pivotal. God made a promise to Abram. Abram first had to believe God and go. So Abram believed God and went. God did a miraculous thing because though Abram's wife, Sarah, as the scripture describes as a beautiful woman, was barren. And God blessed Abram and his wife, Sarai, who was later named Sarah, and they had a son named Isaac, which means laughter, because they thought it was humorous that God gave them a child at such old age because Abram was about 100, which is pretty crazy in general. Can you imagine changing diapers at like I don't know, 101? Sounds pretty crazy to me. So God gave him Isaac. Isaac then grows up and has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And God chooses Jacob and elects Jacob. Not because of what Esau had done wrong, but he chooses Jacob and tells Jacob, Jacob, I'm going to change your name. So this is very pivotal here. To Israel. So this is the beginning of Israel. So now we see the name that's going to be repeated for the rest of Canaanite scripture. Israel, I will make you a great nation. I will bless your sons and I will give you the land that I promised Abraham, your forefather. So Israel believes God and Israel has 12 sons. These 12 sons, uh, there's a long list of names, uh, were imperfect men, just like we are imperfect men. One of the sons' name was Joseph and he had dreams and he was one of the younger sons and he told his brothers of a dream that he had where... They would all... It was a very uh, celestial dream about the sun, the moon, and the stars all bowing down to him. And it was expressed that in his dream that his family, his mother, his father, his brothers, would all bow before him. And his brothers hated him for that. In addition to another dream he had that was very similar. In addition to the fact that his father made him a multicolored coat, which I had to imagine was pretty hilarious, but beautiful. I mean, it's not like he could go to Target to buy a multicolored coat. Uh, there was definitely some effort made in this. So his brothers were jealous of him, and they sought to get rid of him. What they intended for evil, God intended for good. They threw their brother in a well, and they sold him into slavery. And later on, God still has, had his hand upon Joseph that entire time while he was being mistreated. God was using their evil for his good. Because some years later, a famine came. Famine. Hmm, Sounds pretty interesting. It's familiar verbiage. A famine came. And this famine began to affect Israel. So the sons of Israel, the eleven, went to Egypt, where God raised Joseph up to be the hand to Pharaoh to buy grain. You see, Joseph was still having dreams over here, still able to interpret dreams over here. So God used him to help the Pharaoh know that a time of plenty was coming and that they should store extra, and a time of seven years of drought was coming, and at that time, if they stored during the first seven years, they would be able to ride it out. Well, the Israelites did not know because they kicked their brother out who had the awesome dreams, who was able to to interpret awesome dreams, so there was no provision for them. So they go to Egypt to buy grain. Well, long story short, after a bit of drama, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and lets them know that God had provided and what Joseph does is he tells them to bring their entire families there to Egypt come to Egypt, move here and I'll provide for you so the evil that they had in mind God used for good God brought the nation of Israel now into Egypt and because Joseph had a good relationship with Pharaoh there was peace between the Egyptians and the Israelites So now, all of Israel's sons are in Egypt. And sometime after Joseph dies, a new pharaoh comes about and forgets Joseph. He knew nothing of Joseph, or their relationship, or how pivotal he was to their success. And he sees how much God is blessing the numbers of the Israelites. They're becoming as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. And the pharaoh... Fears that the Israelites might try to rise up and take over them. So he begins to put slave drivers over the Hebrews, over the Israelites. He begins to mistreat them. And the people of God begin to cry out to God. And God raises up Moses. Moses to be the deliverer, to be their advocate. Moses goes before Pharaoh and tells him, let my people go. Long story short, God does a miraculous sign after miraculous sign. Punishing the Egyptians and driving Israel out of captivity, out of Egypt, and he drives them away from their oppressors, out of bondage, if you will, out of slavery. And he takes them, he takes them through the Red Sea on dry land, and he brings them into the wilderness. And he begins to establish a covenant with Moses for the Israelites. So now we're seeing thematic similarities. God tells the people, I'm going to give you a law that you must obey. If you obey my law, I will bless you. And not only that, I'm going to give you the land that I promised your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to give you that land now that I've been talking about. We're in the wilderness, but I'm going to give you this land, and this is what you must do to be inhabitants of this land. Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 through 14 summarize the Old Covenant stipulations. And if I could summarize it, I would in this. Obey all of my law, and if you do, I'll bless you in the city. I'll bless you in the country. I'll bless you in the womb, i.e. having numerous children. I will bring rain. Your crops will be abundant. Your livestock will be abundant. Everything you put your hand to will be blessed. And God forbid anybody ever come to rise up against you in battle, you will defeat your enemy. But if you fail to obey my commands, if you choose to disobey, Deuteronomy 28 15 through 68 tells them if you disobey my commands, I will curse you in the city. I will curse you in the country. Everything you put your hand to will come to ruin. There will come famine and plague and, worst of all, the itch that cannot be cured, which alone should incite obedience. If you continue to disobey, I'll bring a foreign army against you to battle you, to punish you for your wickedness. This foreign army will come. They will destroy your city. If you continue to disobey, they will take you from this city as slaves out of the land that I'm giving to you. These are the stipulations given in the Old Covenant. If you are to remain in the territory I'm giving you, in the land, you must obey. And if you obey you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed and eventually removed. Experiencing the same death of Adam, being removed from fellowship with God. So there's some similarities we already see with the garden as well as the old covenant stipulations. God initiates the covenant. God is the initiator of the covenant. God tells these people, the people that are to be in the covenant, that he is making a holy place for them. A place for he and them alone. He gives them a command. If you obey, you stay. Disobey, you go. You're out. So in the garden we see you don't eat of the forbidden fruit. In the old covenant, you don't disobey the law. These are the similarities here. And I really do feel that they're pointing forward. So they agree. The nation of Israel stands in agreement. And they say, everything you say, Moses, we will do. They agree to the covenant that God gave them. And God takes them to the border, to the border of the promised land, Canaan. And God tells Moses to send one man of every tribe, one of the twelve, to go in as spies to investigate and view the land that God has promised them. So the twelve go in and they come back and they verify, you're right, it is the land flowing with uh, milk and honey. It's a wonderful land, but unfortunately, there are giants there. And they live in huge, massive, fortified cities. And there's no way that God can help us win. All of them said that. But two. Joshua and Caleb. And they calmly said, we should go and do as God commanded. God will provide for us. He will protect us. We will win this victory. But they did not listen. The people of God, the Israelites, grumbled and complained aloud and said, Oh, that we would have died in Egypt. And it angered God. So as punishment for their sin, they wandered in that wilderness, outside the border of the promised land. They wandered for an entire generation until everyone in that generation died to never enter the promise. Because they did not have faith to believe God. They did not believe that he would do what he said he was going to do. They did not believe he could give them or fulfill the promise that he'd given them. Except for Joshua and Caleb. They lived. They entered the promised land. They had faith. So they bring the second generation of Israelites, those that were not a part, uh, those that were not represented by those other ten spies... They bring them to the Jordan River to cross in from east to west into the territory and something miraculous happens. God tells Joshua, wait. What I want you to do is I want you to have the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant ahead of you to the Jordan. Well, at this time, the Jordan is in flood stage. So, I mean, we're talking rushing river, rushing river. And as the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized the power of God, His provision for them, and His presence. As they approached the waterline, the water was held up downstream. And they crossed and walked into the riverbed on dry land, and stood as the nation of Israel, cross the Jordan, to go and receive the promised land God had given them. Joshua told them to take twelve massive stones from the riverbed and take them out from the river, and to erect them, and that that would be a monument to show how God provided and how they crossed the Jordan on dry land. A miraculous thing was done. God was showing that He was going to provide for them. They had faith, and they were about to enter the land. Joshua did as God commanded. He honored God. He was courageous. He was strong. And they divvied the land, as God had told them, by the tribes of Israel. Once again, Israel had twelve sons, and these grew into massive tribes of people, and they divided the land. And as we see summarized in the book of Judges, once Joshua died, the people of God, the Israelites, forgot their God, and they served false gods. And God, in covenantal wrath, as he said in Deuteronomy 28 brought foreign army against them to oppress them. And they repented and cried out to God and God elected a judge to come and redeem them. And generation and generation the cycle continued. Oh, I don't know why a foreign army is attacking us again. We're just serving these false gods and God told us that if we did that He would do just that. But God, we're sorry, forgive us. And He would bring a judge and redeem them. And for a generation there would be peace and they would trust God and love God and serve God for a season. And within the span of four years, they forget God again. Later on in the time of Samuel, the nation of Israel came to Samuel, the prophet of God, and said, We want a king. Give us a king, as the Gentiles have. And Samuel was enraged and went before God. And God told Samuel, Samuel, do not be dejected. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. The nation of Israel was to have God be their king. But instead they chose a man. Give us a man to lead us. Because that's what the Gentiles do. And God warned them, if I raise up a man to lead you, he will be evil. This man will do harm to you. He'll take your sons into battle, and he'll bring your daughters, and have them be maids in his home. And you don't want that. And they said, sounds terrible, but we want it. And God gave them what they asked for. God gave them what they asked for. And eventually, the nation of Israel, these 12 strong tribes that were the holy people of God because of the ignorance and foolishness and evil, hard-hearted behavior of men, the southern tribes oppressed the northern tribes so much they broke off into two separate kingdoms. And God eventually brought wrath to both of them for disobedience. They were both destroyed. They were both demolished by Gentiles, exactly as Deuteronomy 28 said. You disobey me, I'll bring a foreign army against you. God was not doing this to be mean. He was trying to keep their hearts after him. God wants his children to love him, to be faithful to him, because he's faithful to them. But unfortunately, as time proceeded, they made peace with being dominated by Gentiles. And we find ourselves in the first century. We find ourselves at a time where Jesus has shown up on the scene in Jerusalem. We find ourselves in a time where they began to hear word of a man who stood at the Jordan River, calling out to everyone in Jerusalem to come and be baptized in the Jordan River, bordering the Promised Land. For the kingdom of God is near. This man wearing camel's hair, who ate locusts and honey. This man, John, this voice calling out of the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord, making straight His path, in accordance with the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3. John was the forerunner, preparing the way for the Messiah. See, all the while, while Israel was in disobedience, God was speaking through the prophets, I will raise up a king, a son of David, (laughs) to sit upon the throne. I, God will, not man, because the the people that led them, were temporal, foolish people. And though David was a good king, he still made mistakes. And he sinned before God. And though Solomon in some respects was a wise king and there was prosperity and peace, he disobeyed God. But God himself said that he would raise up a king. This king was to come after the forerunner came proclaiming the gospel. This king was Jesus the Pharisees and Sadducees came out to the Jordan River to see John, to see what he was saying. And when John saw them in Matthew 3, verses 7 through 12, this is what John told them. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think that you can say for yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones... Oh, uh, where is he staying the Jordan River, that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree does not produce fruit, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, of whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, his winnowing fork in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering the wheat into the barn and burning the chaff with unquenchable fire. Wrath is coming. They're under the old covenant. What kind of wrath is coming? Covenantal wrath. For what? I don't know. Disobedience to God? Serving false gods? Having their heart be far away from God? Not? Considering mercy, love, and grace? How about those things? John, do you see the gravity? John is speaking to the leaders, the, those who are in charge of Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. These are basically like judges in their era that have pretty much gone apostate, who are serving Rome, the Gentile nation that is over them, and covenantal wrath for their disobedience. They've given in, and they've given their hearts to another, turning from God. Later on, Jesus walks down from the north, down from Galilee to John. John tries to deter Jesus. No, 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 no. You should baptize me. And Jesus replies, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. So in the Jordan, once again, on the border of the promised land, John lowers Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, into the water and raises him out. And the scripture says, in Matthew 3, starting in verse 16, As soon as Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, and with Him I am well pleased at the border of the land they consider to be the promised land. God anoints the king as he begins to walk in and build his kingdom. Now unfortunately, unlike the days of old, the Jews knew their history. When their land was established, when God established their land, it was through might. It was through military power. God used Joshua. They waged war against their enemies to take back their land. They're currently being ruled over by Rome and it often that's what they were waiting for. They were waiting for a warrior king to show up with a sword in hand to kill the Romans because obviously they're the enemies. Oh, wait, or are they the instrument of God's wrath punishing us? They did not see it as such. Jesus came to build a spiritual kingdom. When Pilate asked Jesus, Are you a king? Jesus said, It is so. It is as you said. But my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight for me. Jesus did not come to establish a king with physical borders or physical territory. Jesus came to build a temple for God with himself as the cornerstone and the apostles as the foundation. With each man a living stone, as 1 Peter tells us, building up into a, a beautiful temple for God. Jesus was doing this in the first century. Back to our text, Matthew 7, 13, and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter it, but small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So, in the Old Covenant, and we see the illusions of the kingdom, there is a territory. Okay? There is a stipulation for obedience. And there is a blessing. Jesus preached the kingdom over and over and over. And Jesus was the Messiah establishing that kingdom. He began to preach the good news. John 6.35 I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never thirst. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Will have the light of life. John 14.6 I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Are we seeing the gate yet? Are we seeing the road narrow as these men in the first century look to say, my faith, my relationship with God is Torah and Torah alone because I'm so good at obeying it. Or is my relationship with God dependent upon obedience to Torah plus the teaching of my favorite Pharisee? Or, is my relationship with God obedience to Torah plus submission to Rome? Or, is my relationship with God hinged upon the name of Jesus Christ alone? It's a narrow road. It's a narrow gate. And in the first century, many found destruction, quite literally, for not heeding the words of Christ. And few of those people found the road. John 10, 9, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. John 11:25 25, and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will enter. And even though they die, whoever believes, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus came to his people and he said, Oh, that I could gather you into my wings as a hand gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. They rejected their king, their Messiah. In the Old Testament, we see that Joshua was told to send the procession of the priests, carrying the covenant of God, the power of God, the literal manifestation of God's presence before them to prepare their way. It was the Ark of the Covenant that was carried around Jericho when the trumpets blasted. It was the power of God that brought down the walls of their enemies. And we see Christ himself baptized in the Jordan, making straight the path, the literal power of God, the literal king, to make straight the path, calling first to Jerusalem his children to believe in him. Jesus fed 5,000 and they wanted to elect him king. And the next day, His word wasn't good enough. Show us the sign. Abraham produced manna and quail. And Jesus said, the work of God is this, for you to believe in the one God sent. Speaking of himself, Jesus Christ. Narrow is the way. In the Old Testament, if there was not faith, those Israelites standing at the border never saw the promised land for lack of faith. And in the same way, friends... Though we're not first century Jews, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Are we all alive in this room? Have we all come to Christ and admitted our guilt? Have we begged and pleaded, Lord? Have we prayed, Jesus, forgive me my sins. I believe in the work you did on the cross. Have we spoken to God? Have we asked God to cleanse us? Have we accepted the work of Christ on the cross? If we have not, friends, we are still enemies of God, awaiting death, eternal separation from Him. But friends, if you walk through that narrow gate, if you put your faith in Christ Jesus, welcome to a new status of existence. You're no longer an enemy of God. You're no longer chaff awaiting burning. You're now son. You're now our daughter. You have now tasted life. Jesus said eternal life is this, to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Let me ask you, why are we here this morning? Are we here because of rote? Is this just what we do? Is there faith in your heart? Do you know that after this life that you will Transition into eternity with God. If you do not, friends, let's pray together. Put your faith in Christ. Become a child of God. The first century Jews who did not believe Jesus literally saw destruction. They literally saw foreign armies come. They literally saw coming covenantal wrath. I sometimes think that if such a thing were to come to this nation, to our people, there might be more believers. I pray that that's never so. But we all face death. And I pray that when we do, we will be ready. We will be at peace. And that we would be embraced by our Heavenly Father who has called us a son or a daughter of Abraham just as Paul told the Galatians. If you believe, if you have faith, you are truly a son of Abraham, a daughter of Abraham, the children of promise who would go and possess the land. The kingdom, friends, is this, is a relationship with God and the gate is faith in Jesus Christ. It's simple, but it's profound. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. You deserve everything. We are imperfect people. Father God, may we care enough about those in our lives friends, co workers, family members, strangers. Lord. Father, may we look with spiritual eyes to those around us. Father, may we point to the narrow way. Would you, God, forgive us of our selfishness and self-centeredness that we walk day in and day out, God, to extend your love and to point in the narrow way. May we value you enough, Jesus. To potentially be made fun of. To bring people to life. Father, may we tell others the simple truth of your love, your grace, your mercy, and your kind. May we never take our sonship or places, your daughter, for granted again. In Jesus' name. Amen.